The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus 20, verses 1 through 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. So uh, I'm an unfamiliar face for maybe some of you this morning. So let me introduce myself. My name is Jeff Miller. I am the church planning resident uh, here at Sacred City. So they're training me uh, in all things church planning so that one day uh, when God is prepared and when I'm prepared, uh, we will be ready to uh, plant a church. Uh, Also this morning, um, be in prayer for uh, Pastor Justin. Pastor Justin is in uh, Collinsville, Illinois today, just outside of St. Louis. Uh, and Heights Church is a church that we've been supporting for about three years now, and today they celebrate their third anniversary. Uh, so Pastor Justin's up there with them uh, preaching in their services this morning. So uh, be in prayer for him and Heights Church and uh, him and Amanda and, and their family will get to enjoy the sights and sounds of St. Louis uh, this week as they're on spring break. So uh, be thinking of them as they're up there enjoying the Children's Museum, and we are here uh, enjoying cold weather. Uh, so that's, that's where they are. But uh, I'm thankful for the opportunity to preach to you this morning and speak to you. Uh, I want to start with a little story this morning because that may uh, kind of set us uh, off a little bit, or that may set us up a little better. So in the year 2000, uh, I received my first ever pickup truck, which uh, for a boy is like a dream come true, right? So uh, it was a 1989 Chevy Silverado. Uh, it was two-tone, blue on the top and blue on the bottom and gold uh, down the middle. It was a two-wheel drive. It had a 305 motor in it, and it was sweet. And what had happened was my dad had just went out and bought himself a brand new 2000 Chevy Silverado, uh, and they didn't want to give him much for the trade, so he just decided to give it to me for free, which was great. Uh, And I loved it, and I drove that truck everywhere. Uh, And one of the first things I did when I got that truck was I went down to the local uh, car audio store, uh, because in it, it only had a tape player, and that just wouldn't work for me. Uh, I think the only tape I had at the time was Tiffany. Anybody remember (laughs) Tiffany? Like that was it. Okay, so that dates me a little bit, but that's the tape I had. So uh, I went down to the car audio store and I wanted to get a CD player put in and I began looking at all of them and checking them all out. And uh, the CD player that I wanted cost about 85 bucks, which uh, doesn't sound like a whole lot of money, but I was broke. 
Uh, I was paying for insurance, and remember I told you the truck had a 305 motor in it, so gas was uh, not a friend of this truck, or maybe it was a really good friend of this truck, but it would, it would um, you know, every gas station I went by, it wanted more. So I was pretty broke, uh, so what I had to do was save up for a couple months, uh, and I eventually saved my 85 bucks, and I went into the car audio place, and I bought my CD player, uh, and then they proceeded to tell me that it would be uh, another uh, $50 or so to install the CD player, which I did not have. So I had to take the box of the CD player and, you know, kind of put it on the seat of the truck and drive around with it for a few weeks until I could save the rest of the money to go get that CD player installed. So I went down and finally got that put in and, uh, and, and was good to go. And then what I did uh, was I started to up my CD collection. And, and just about that time, for those of you that were around in the year 2000, uh, you remember there was this great thing that came out called Napster. And Napster was a way to get all the free music that you could possibly want or enjoy or need. So I began to pirate, which I later found out was a fancy word for stealing. Uh, I began to uh, just download every CD I could think of. Every song you ever wanted was there. And I made CD after CD after CD. And this will date me as well. Some of you may remember the big uh, CD thing that went on your sun visor. Like I had one for the driver's side and the passenger side. And then I had the big booklet too. And I was just burning CDs like crazy. And it was classic. So now I want you to fast forward a couple years. I, I grew up in Delaware, so that's where all that took place. But then I went to school out at Colorado State, out in Fort Collins, Colorado. And I moved out there, and I'm in my sophomore year of college. And uh, I had an 8 a.m. class, which all of you that have been college students know that like, that is the absolute worst, right? Like It's the hardest class to wake up for. But I drug myself out of bed, and I came out. And as I came out to my truck, I noticed that something was wrong uh, with the driver's side window. And really what was wrong was it was missing. And uh, I was like, what in the, like, did I leave it rolled down? Like, what happened? So I got up to the truck, and there was shattered glass everywhere, and there was a, a huge rock sitting in the, in the seat of the truck. And what had happened was in the middle of the night, somebody had taken that giant rock and thrown it through the window, but they weren't satisfied at just destroying my property. They proceeded to steal my CD player and every single one of my CDs. And so I just stood at my truck, just, yeah, with that feeling, like, oh, there was other words that may have been said, but I was, I was pretty heartbroken. So I called the police, and they came and did their little report, right? And I just remember the whole time standing there going through the emotions of, like, that clenched fist anger, right? Like, I will just hurt someone, and then just tears of, like, someone stole all my stuff. Like, and I went back and forth depending on if the cop was looking at me or not. And uh, it, it was just, for a solid week, I was mad at everybody who even, like, looked at my truck, right? Like, I would stare out the balcony window at my truck and just see if people drove by slowly to see if the window was fixed. And I was just convinced, like, if they did, it was them. And I was just an angry little boy. And uh, I did what what any reasonable person would do after that. I uh, went down uh, to the local car audio store there, and I had a, a alarm system put on my 89 Chevy Silverado with liability insurance. And uh, because I was sure and I was certain that nobody was going to steal from me again, right? Nobody was going to take my CDs and my, and my CD player. And, uh, you know, being stolen from was probably and is probably one of the worst feelings in the world. Just to know that somebody else has what you worked for. Somebody else took your stuff. I remember for weeks driving around in that truck with just the hole where the CD player used to be, right? Like you have all the memories of the thing that you once owned, but now no longer have the thing that you once owned. And it's just, it's just gone and it's taken and, uh, you know, just in the night, it's gone. This morning as we come to the Eighth Commandment, we find, though, that God is on our side when it comes to stealing. And everybody that's been stolen from said, Amen. So let's grab our Bibles this morning and let's jump over to Exodus chapter 20. And we're going to look at verse 15 uh, this morning and find out what God has to say about the idea of stealing, about theft. And so Exodus chapter 20 and verse 15, very long text of Scripture here, all four words of it, you shall not steal. And all of us that have been stolen from again said, amen. Let's pray this morning and we'll jump into this, okay? Father, we are uh, thankful this morning that you've called us in. We're thankful for a place that we can gather and learn more about you and grow in you and uh, that our faith may be deepened in you this morning. God, we pray that this morning that as your word is spoken, uh, God, I pray that you would hide me behind this pulpit. I pray that the words that I speak would be yours. And God, I pray that we would hear today that only the gospel can satisfy the thief's heart. Only the gospel can satisfy our thieving hearts. God, this morning, may you uh, break that inside of us so that you can mend us. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. 
Amen. So four words here is what we come to. You shall not steal. But what is God saying when he says you shall not steal? So I looked up some synonyms. Uh, those mean, that means like words uh, for stealing. Okay. So let me just list off some of those and maybe you'll become more familiar with what God's saying here in Exodus twenty fifteen: Robbery, larceny, burglary, hijacking, shoplifting, pickpocketing, purse snatching, embezzlement, uh, extortion, racketeering, falsifying your timesheet at work, fudging the numbers on your tax return, plagiarism, all the college kids hung their head, okay? Taking the robe from the hotel, okay? All ways of stealing, okay? And you'd be hard-pressed in our culture today to go around and try to find somebody who didn't believe that stealing was wrong. Like, everybody knows that stealing's wrong, especially when it comes to our own stuff, right? When it comes to our own stuff, we know for sure that nobody has a right to that, that it is ours. And the definition of stealing, it says to steal is to take something that doesn't belong to you, to take something that doesn't belong to you. The Hebrew uh, word for stealing is actually the word ganaf, and it literally means to carry away as if by stealth, right? You can almost picture the guy with the ski mask in your living room in the middle of the night, taking your TV and handing it out a window to an accomplice. And they've got a van, right? And they put your stuff in there and they quietly drive off in the night. And that is stealing to, uh, to take or carry away as if by stealth. You know, when it comes to stealing, most of us would say, I would never do that. I would never do that. Stealing is just not me. It's not what I do. And I want to I wanna encourage us this morning to, to pay attention and, and see if that is true of us. Martin Luther said, if we look at mankind in all its conditions, it is nothing but a vast, wide, stable full of great thieves. Wow, that makes us feel really comfortable this morning, right? As we look at all of mankind and nothing but a vast, wide, stable full of great thieves. Martin Luther is saying that all of us, thieves, every one of us, your favorite aunt, your third grade teacher, the quiet dude in the cubicle next to you at work, you, we are all thieves. And in the eighth commandment, we find God addressing the issue of theft and he says, don't do it. And like the rest of the 10 commandments, we find that there's no asterisks here. We find that there's no footnotes here where God says, hey, stealing is okay if you're broke right? Or stealing is okay uh, if you really need the thing you stole. Or stealing is okay uh, if you should have gotten what you took in the first place. We don't see that here. We don't see any asterisks or footnotes that lead us to believe. God simply and plainly says here, you shall not steal. Don't do it. And just like the rest of the Ten Commandments, we see that there is a negative side and a positive side, right? We're told not to steal. But what would the positive side of you shall not steal be? Well, the positive side would be enjoy all that you do have. Enjoy it. Use it. Uh, It's been given to you. It's a gift. It's for your pleasure. It's for your enjoyment. So we find God in the eighth commandment saying to us, I have given you all these things for your enjoyment. Now do that. Enjoy them. God's saying here, what's yours is yours. See, God God is in fact for us having things. The eighth commandment is for your good. It's for your ultimate joy. So God is not saying here, don't have things. God is for us having things. But God is also saying what is your neighbor's is your neighbor. See, he's also for your neighbor having things. It's for their ultimate good and their ultimate joy as well. So if God is saying what's yours is yours and what's your neighbor's is your neighbor's, he's saying, hey, I'm making the case here for personal property rights, that it is okay for you to have things, And it is okay for your neighbor to have things. And since both of them have been given these things by God, that means that we both have the right not to be stolen from, right? It's not only you that don't have the right to be stolen from, it's your neighbor as well. It's your boss as well. It's your company as well that has the right not to be stolen from. This morning, as we look at the Eighth Commandment, there are two predominant cultural views uh, when it comes to stealing, and they actually kind of feed into each other, but I want to give those to you just so we know uh, where we're at with the Eighth Commandment. So the predominant cultural views when it comes to property rights, one is what's mine is mine, right? We're all very familiar with that view. What's mine is mine, and the culture is all about self-preservation, 
Do you remember years ago, there was a movie that came out, it's called Finding Nemo, and Nemo goes on this, this search, right? And, or excuse me, his father goes on this search, and he's trying to find Nemo, and there comes a scene where Nemo's father pokes his head up out of the water, and there's a bunch of, uh, uh, I think it's pelicans there, or seagulls maybe that are there. Do you remember what they all began saying as, as his dad pops his head up out of the water? Yeah, mine, 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 right? Like, that's our culture. That's what our culture does. It sees something that it wants, and everybody starts claiming it, right? Mine, mine, mine. I have to have that. It's mine. I'm going after it. It's mine. And you can almost hear our society saying with kind of clenched fists, like, this is my property. I'm going to keep it. This belongs to me. Don't talk about it. Don't ask for it. Don't expect me to share it or let somebody else use it. This is mine. And it may even go further. Like, I worked for this. I earned this. It's my private property. What's mine is mine. And you could just see the knuckles getting whiter and whiter as we hold tighter and tighter to those things, right? What's mine is mine. The second cultural view feeds off of that. And it says, what's yours should be mine. So I have a right to it. What's yours should be mine. So I have a right to it. You see, what we come to know from this is this is where entitlement comes from. We look at other people's things and we say, I want that and I'll do what I can to take it. I'll do what I must to have it, whether it's illegally or whether we find a clever way to steal it legally. Entitlement comes in and says, I deserve that thing that I haven't earned, that I haven't necessarily worked for. And and this kind of shows itself in, in maybe less obvious ways, things like when you don't clock out for lunch or things maybe like you don't claim something you should have on your taxes or maybe you claim a little extra or maybe you go out for lunch on the business account rather than your own account. Or for those of you that may be a business owner, maybe you overbill a customer for the cost of materials. And I think you kind of get the picture of, of what goes on there. The idea is what's yours should be mine. And the heart of stealing is based on the belief that I deserve something that I have not earned. I deserve something that I have not earned. So that's what the culture says. But we are gospel people. We are believers. So what does the Bible have to say about that? What's the Bible say when it comes uh, to ownership, about property rights, about the things that we own? So when it comes to the things that we own, there's a biblical principle that we're introduced to. We're not introduced to it. We are introduced to it here, but it it actually came much earlier in this. But we're going to become familiar with a term called stewardship. Stewardship. You see, stewardship says what's mine is God's and I'll share it. I'll steward it. You see, the concept, is a, the concept of stewardship is actually a very important concept all throughout Scripture. You'll see it over and over and over again, the fact that God has given us things and we are to be overseers of those things. In fact, when it comes to being an elder, Titus 1.7 says, For an overseer, as God's stewards, must be above reproach. You hear the first requirement? A good steward. So family, important. Theology, important. But first, stewardship to be qualified to be an elder. You see, stewardship is a countercultural way of seeing our stuff. Stewardship sees, sees everything you own and everything I own uh, as, as um, something to be dispersed, something to be given out. Not necessarily given away, but something to be given out, something to let somebody else in on. Stewardship sees everything as belonging to the Lord. Everything comes from the Lord. Everything will return to the Lord. Everything is the Lord's. And whatever we have, he's entrusted to us as stewards. So what that means for us this morning is it means that when it comes to our stuff, we're more managers than we are owners. For those of you that have um, lived any amount of time, you've probably been around someone who at one point or another became the executor of a will, right? Somebody in the family passed away and they had a will, a document that stated whose things goes to who. And in that, the person that's the executor of the will looks at that will and testament and says, okay, this piece of property belongs to you now. This piece of property belongs to you now. This piece of property, and we, they dole those things out, right? They give them out to whoever it was told they were to give those things to. They distribute the estate of that person. That very idea right there is the idea of stewardship, that you and I have been given things. So the steward realizes this is not mine. It's been entrusted to my oversight. This has been entrusted for me, and I need to follow the agreement and the terms that were laid down for the distribution of these assets. So again, hear me well. It's not that we're giving all of our stuff away. It's that we are using our things to bring honor and glory to the one who in the first place gave it to us. 
You see, that's seeing the Eighth Commandment in its proper light. Everything in my life belongs to the Lord. My money, my assets, my house, my car, my kids, my wife, my time is all His. All these things that I've been given, I can't claim any of them as my own. They're all His, the giver of these good things. He's entrusted me with these things, and I need to steward them as instructed in His Word for my joy and for His glory. That's part of the principle of the Eighth Commandment. And then we see another thing that flows out of this uh, is being satisfied, being content with what we do have. Being satisfied as we look at our stuff and saying, okay, this is a good thing and I will enjoy it. And not looking at everybody else's stuff and saying, man, I'm just really unsatisfied with where I'm at. I'm really unsatisfied with my station in life right now. And we, we feel this discontented heart, right? That we should constantly be having more and gaining more and getting more. It's interesting, God's saying to his people here, you will not steal because I will be the one giving you all that you need. Think about that. If, if God's saying, I will be the one to give you all that you need, why would we need to look anywhere else? All we need is already here. He's giving us all the things that, that we should have. For the Israelites, the case is a little different, right? Other nations around them were all about pillaging and stealing and taking what didn't belong to them. But God is saying that will not be so for my people. My people will rejoice in what they have. My people will enjoy the good things that I've given to them. And my people will be content. Think about how countercultural that is to a group of people that are around them that are all about taking and thieving and gaining and, and, and just keeping adding on and adding on and adding on. Again, think of the Israelites here. These are people that have nothing. They've been slaves their entire life. There's, there's, these are literally people who have never had nice things. Nothing they have is fancy or lavish. We are told that the shoes on their feet will not wear out this whole time that they're in Exodus, but they certainly are probably dusty. Their clothes are dingy. Their hair probably hasn't been washed since they walked through the Red Sea. This is it. This is all they have. This is all that they know, but now they find themselves free from bondage. Now they find themselves free from slavery, free from having nothing. The tendency here would be to look back and remember all the fine things the Egyptians had, or maybe even look around at the other nations around them and, and look at all the things they have and how well established they are. And they would crave after those things and want to collect them and possibly hoard anything they could so they, to, they, they get their hands on and, and have more. In fact, we've already seen this in the case of, of the Israelites. If you will, this morning, flip back to Exodus chapter 16, and we'll see this, how this has already played out a little bit uh, in their lives. Exodus uh, chapter 16, verses 16 through 20. I'll read it quickly for us. It just should be a page back for you. But remember, God told the Israelites here in Exodus 16, he told them that he's going to provide manna for them each morning. And he tells them that they, they need to collect enough for that day because more would come the next day. But there were some in the crowd who did not believe it. And there were some in the crowd who insisted on stealing. Here's what Exodus 16, 16 through 20 says. It says, this is what the Lord commanded. Gather of it, eat each one of you uh, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some, uh, excuse me, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms, and it stank. The truth of these people here is that they didn't trust God. They didn't believe that he was good, and they didn't believe that he would provide for all their needs. So they did what they had to do, and they went, and they, they believed that they couldn't gather enough, so they stole more. Listen, the question that should come up for us there is, why would a people who have seen all that these people have seen from the hand of God possibly steal? All the things that they've received, all the things they've been through up until this point, why would they possibly feel the need to steal, to be a thief? And I want to submit to you this morning that I believe it's the same reason that we do. It's fear. It's fear. This is the reason why they stole, and this is the reason why many of us steal. We fear that God either can't or won't take care of us. And if God can't or won't take care of us, that leaves us with one option. You and me. 
It leaves me with the only option of myself. If God's not going to do it, then I have to do it. You see, when fear is ruling our hearts, we believe that God is not good. I want you to picture a tree with me this morning, and there'll be a picture of it here on the screen. And all of us have seen a tree before, before, and a tree oftentimes bears fruit. Maybe it's apples or oranges. But I want you to look at this tree this morning as this tree representing your life, because every one of us bears some type of fruit. But oftentimes, when the tree of our life will bear bad fruit, what we'll usually do is we'll go to that fruit and we'll pick it off and we'll begin to operate kind of out of our own strength and our own ability when we grab that fruit off of there, right? We'll put rules and regulations in our life to say, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to keep that fruit from being produced again. Whatever it is, whether it's fear, anxiety, discontentment, anger, you could, you could write anything you want to on that fruit, but oftentimes we pick it and then we put things in our life to make sure that that fruit doesn't get reproduced but all of you know and have, that have seen a fruit tree before, it continues to produce fruit. And our lives are much the same way. Now, our lives will produce good fruit, but in the midst of that, it will also produce bad fruit. But what happens and what needs to happen is we've got to get beyond just picking the bad fruit off of our life and kind of putting rules and regulations into place. And we've got to get to the root system of the tree and say, what's poisoning the root system here that's creating this bad fruit to be produced. You see, most of us don't like that because that's hard work. Picking the fruit is way easier than actually seeing what's contaminating the root system. But we've got to get down underneath of it. You see, when fear and anxiety and discontentment is produced, the problem with our root system is we believe that God is not in control and he doesn't care about us. So when, he, when we believe that, we have to take up the reins of our own life and we've got to do all that we can do to be in control. We have to do all that we can do for fear and anxiety and discontentment to be pushed down or to be uh, uh, pushed aside or, or even pushed down. We do this in a lot of different ways. And, and some of us that are picking the fruit and not really dealing with the root, you are, you are people here this morning that often overwork. You feel stressed out. Maybe you, you suffer with depression occasionally. You feel isolated. You never have time to play or recreate because you're constantly working harder to be better. You're constantly uh, working harder to, to not feel the weight of the fear or the anxiety or the discontentment. When we overwork and we refuse to rest and we refuse to recreate, we often don't have time for the gathering like you're in this morning. We often don't have time for MC or a fight club. And what we're doing is we're not functioning out of the identities that God has given to us. See, as believers, God's given us identities as a family, as missionaries, as servants, and as learners. And when we, when we overwork and when we, we allow fear and anxiety and discontentment to continue to pollute our life, it becomes impossible for us to disciple or even be discipled because we just don't have time for it. We're worn out from working so hard to push that thing down. And what's happened is we've, we've began to look elsewhere when we fear that God won't provide. And we've forgotten truths like what's found in Luke 12, 27. Let me read it to you this morning. It says, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more would he clothe you, O you of little faith? Scripture goes on to say this in verse 29. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do you hear the last part there? Seek his kingdom. You see, when you and I fear that God won't provide, we begin to seek another kingdom. We begin to seek our kingdom. We begin to take care of ourselves, and we, need to, we feel the need to take on the burden of providing all that God said he would. And listen, that's a very exhausting task to provide for yourself all the things that God said he would provide for you. And we do this in a number of different ways. Simply, uh, maybe it's, uh, it's clocking back in from lunch a little early to get overtime. Maybe it's taking some supplies home from the office. These are just a couple ways that we are taking care of ourselves rather than trusting in the provision of God. And the Bible is very clear about what this is called. It says it's called sin. See, stealing is a sin against God, against our neighbor, and against ourself. And, and just for just a couple minutes here, I want to look at those three things kind of in reverse, that stealing is a sin against God, your neighbor, and against yourself. 
So one, stealing is a sin against yourself. Psalm 62.10 says this, Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. What David just told us there in Psalm 62 is stealing or robbing hardens our heart toward God. It makes us rely on our own self rather than God. See, really, it's the anti-gospel. It's saying, I deserve that thing, and I'll steal from someone else if I have to. I'll steal from my company if I have to. You see, where Jesus says we deserve death and lays down his life for us to save us, stealing says, I deserve blessing, and I'll make somebody else lay down their life for me. It places our trust and our faith in ourselves rather than God's goodness and his providence. Two, stealing is a sin against your neighbor. These last six commandments are all about loving your neighbor, but I would submit to you that it's very hard to love our neighbor when we're constantly stealing from them. And you might say, well, dude, I'm not stealing from my neighbor, but we know uh, well enough by now to know that in the New Testament, Jesus told us that everyone around us is our neighbor. So it's not literally you looking over the fence to your right or to your left. This is the people you come in contact with. In Genesis three seventeen through 19, it says this, and to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree, which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Listen to this. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. You see, part of the curse of the fall was that man would live by the sweat of his face. But stealing is an effort to make a living by, by uh, the sweat of someone else's face. You hear that? Stealing is getting things from others that you are not willing to work for yourself. It's an attempt to escape the curse placed on Adam and all of humanity. I would also add that stealing from others makes it very hard for you and I to live in authentic community. You see, if I'm constantly taking what I need uh, for myself, I won't find the need for community to be very great. And what I do in that instance is I rob my missional community, I, I rob my fight club of an opportunity to steward their resources toward me. You see, it's not always just taking, 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 uh, as we would think of having an object in our hand. Sometimes when we do these things, we rob the people around us of an opportunity to actually bless us, an opportunity to act as God's people. Last, stealing is a sin against God. In stealing, we're saying, God, you are not enough for me. That should humble us a little bit this morning. To recognize in our thieving, what we are saying is, God, what, who you are and what you have given me is not enough. Here in Exodus, uh, God is making a covenant with his people. In Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, uh, before the Ten Commandments are given, God's speaking to Moses and he says, Now therefore you will indeed obey my voice and my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. God is saying, I freed you. Now here is how freed people should live in order to show other nations what I am like. And God says specifically here, then you shall not steal. The purpose of the Ten Commandments that shows us is that God is good and God is gracious to his people, that God will provide for them. So we find a bit of this is to be satisfied in God, to know him and enjoy him and not look elsewhere and not go outside of his plan for the things that we need in our life. And it's, it's being satisfied in what we do have. Think about this. Satisfied people don't steal. Content people don't steal. And this is why this is such a big deal to God. It's looking at his face and saying, you are not enough for me. And that actually goes all the way back to the first commandment. That all goes all the way back. You shall have no other gods before me, and we break it. God said, if you keep the commandments, I will prosper you. But if you break the commandments, there will be judgment. I'd also add this morning that stealing completely contradicts the character of God. Think about this. God is gracious, but the thief is greedy. God gives, but the thief takes. God responds to the cries of the needy, but the thief creates tragedy. See, nothing could be more contrary to the graciousness of God than the cruelty of a thief. Just think this morning. Think about that dude who stole my stereo and all my CDs. Like, we hate that guy, right? 
This was my property, my stuff. I worked for it. I earned it. I saved. And I hate that guy. He took what was mine. And as I look at the commandment, you shall not steal, I kind of feel like David when, when Nathan was telling him the story about the rich man who stole the poor man's sheep, right? And David gets this anger inside of him and he says, man, as surely as I live, I will kill that man. It says David's anger was greatly kindled. And he said, as, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. When I look at that dude who stole my CDs, I feel the same way. I don't know, they're CDs, right? You're like, dude, you must have loved those things, right? But all of us are like that when it's concerning our stuff. It's mine. But I'm also confronted just like David as he stood before Nathan this morning because I am a thief. Nathan said to David, you are that man. There have been many times in my life where I have robbed God and I have robbed my neighbor. In my fear that God would not provide, I have sinned. You see, God made me to love, and when I don't give love, I sin, and I've stolen that love from that person. God made me to serve, and when I don't serve, I'm stealing. God made me to share and steward my resources, and when I don't, I'm stealing. I'm stealing time that God gave to me. Daily, I'm stealing breath, days, hours, weeks, months, years, dollars, relationships, words, opportunities. Man, I I'm confronted with that. I am a thief. And I hope that as you see that this morning, you see yourself maybe in that same light or that same boat. What happens is though, most of us don't see ourselves as thieves because what we do is we have the tendency to view ourselves in the best possible light. I'm a good person. I do good things. And we, maybe we even justify, like, I was just doing what I had to do to provide. I was just doing what I had to do to get by or to get a little bit ahead. And that's the case we kind of build up for ourselves. I'm not as bad as them. I didn't do what that guy did or what that girl did. See, but there's a case that's being built against us that sheds a different light on us. You see, every time we fail to invest our life as God, the owner of all life tells us to, we're stealing from God, our creator. We're stealing uh, from, from one to get something from another or to, to get something for ourselves from another. Listen, we are accruing a debt toward God, and the Bible calls that debt sin. Every month in my mailbox, and every month probably in your mailbox, I get bills, right? They're constant reminders of my debt. You owe this for your car. You owe this for your house. You owe this for your kid's school bill. You owe this for your insurance. You owe this for Netflix. You owe this for, right? It just keeps adding up month after month after month. And like, and, and then if you don't pay those things, you get constant reminders when they start calling your phone, right? Hey, you're a little late. Hey, you owe this. Hey, this is due. These constant reminders. But all the while, while that debt is accruing, there's a greater debt that's accruing, and it's, it's constant. And we don't receive the bill for it until we die, and that's our spiritual debt to God. Hebrews 9.27 says it this way, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. You see, there will come a day for every single one of us that we will pass from life to death. And when we do that, we will stand face to face with a risen Christ. And when that happens, we will be fully aware of the burden of our debt. We will be fully aware of what is owed. And our sin debt stands against us and it has legal demands and it needs to be paid for. But this is a debt that you and I cannot afford. This is a debt that you and I just can't work harder to pay off. Jesus, uh, when the disciples asked him how to pray, Jesus taught the disciples this, how to pray in Matthew 6. Jesus teaching the disciples says this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. You hear that? Right in the midst of, of Jesus teaching the disciples how to pray, we find a daily reminder that we owe God. Think about that. The heart of the thief says, you owe me, and I will take something that's yours that I haven't earned. Again, it's that entitled heart. But Jesus shows the heart of a Christian says, forgive me of my debts. The Christian sees themselves as a debtor to God. The Lord's prayer is meant to be a daily reminder that the only thing we deserve is punishment 
condemnation, and justice from God for our many sins. This should lead us to ask, then how do I get rid of this debt? How do I get forgiven of this debt? I want it off my shoulders. Most of us know well enough to know by now that debts don't just pay themselves. Many of us have tried, right? I'll ignore the letters. I'll ignore the phone call. I know who that office is that's calling now. I'll stop answering the phone. But you know well enough to know that that debt will not go away. Ignoring it doesn't work. And this debt has a compounding interest and we add to it daily. You see, on your credit card, when you max it out, they won't let you spend any more money. But when it comes to sin, we just keep doing it. We just keep adding on and piling on and piling on. And I want to kind of submit this morning to you this. Maybe maybe some of you are here and you're like, dude, you're way off base. I've never stolen anything in my life. I've never taken anything. Like some people take pens from banks and stuff. Not me. I would walk it right back in if I found out that I had had that in my pocket right? Not me. I didn't take gum from the candy store when I was little. That's, that's stealing. I didn't do that. I never cheated on a test looking over somebody's shoulder. I didn't, I didn't do that. I'm not a thief. I clock in and out for lunch when I'm supposed to. I don't flex my time, right? Like I do these things that I do because I'm not a thief. But I want to submit to you this. You may not have ever stolen anything in your life, but I would, I would ask you, who's providing for all of your needs? Who's providing for all of your needs? You see, oftentimes we become like a self-made man or a self-made woman, and we take up the reins of our life, and we begin taking care of all of our needs. I make the money. I pay the bills. I do all the things that I need to do to get by. And I would ask you in that instance, who gets the glory from your life? Oftentimes that points directly back at you, right? You're the man. You're the woman. You're the one providing. And I would submit to you this morning that you are a glory thief, if that's the case. You are asking people to look at how great you are and how great a provider you are when we should be pointing the finger back to Jesus and saying, look at how great a provider he is on my behalf. See the difference that that makes? Listen, Colossians 3, 13 and 14 says it this way, and you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Listen, this is a surprising turn of events here. In a surprising turn of events, Jesus takes what isn't his, our sins, and he takes them on the cross to pay our debts to forgive us what we, what we don't deserve. God's love, God's acceptance, God's forgiveness, Jesus' perfect righteousness is added to us because Jesus took what didn't belong to him and put it on himself on the cross. God took our sins and put them on Jesus. Jesus never took anything in his entire life except your sin and my sin. That was the only thing Jesus ever took that didn't belong to him. This is the gospel. We owe God. Our debt separates us from God. But God set our debt aside by nailing it to Jesus on the cross. Were it not for Jesus, we would have no hope. We would have to shoulder the burden of our debt. We would have to find ways to perform well enough, earn enough, beg, borrow, and steal to escape it. All without avail. All without success. The God we owe the debt to, though, came to pay our debt. Lived without sin. No spiritual debt whatsoever went to the cross, died in our place to pay our debt. Jesus suffered so that we don't have to suffer. Jesus took our sin so we don't have to take anymore. Jesus stood in our place so that we don't have to spend forever separated from him in hell. This again is the good news of the gospel. When Jesus died, our debt was paid. Think about this for a moment. If you're in a situation and you have a huge debt looming over your shoulders, a huge debt that you get bills for every single month, and somebody came in and they paid that debt off overnight, what's the reaction of one whose debt has been paid? Do we just sit and, and nod and say, that was nice, man, cool, right? Like just a simplistic, like, thanks, like, no. Think about some of the debts that you have, right? Those of you that are Palmer students, right? hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt, right? And somebody comes in and they say, you know what? I'll cover that. What's your reaction to that person? Like it should at least get like a, woo, right? Like something. 
You would be excited. You would be thankful. The Bible says a word, the word would be to rejoice, to proclaim it, to tell everyone about it, to go out and scream that person's names in the streets, to just tell how great that person is that's done this. You'd tell others about the free gift you received. What about us believers? What about us Christians? We've been, we've been forgiven of a debt that we had no ability to pay. But what's our reaction toward the one who's forgiven us of this debt? Our reaction should be little more than a woo, right? It should be screamed in the streets. It should be told from the rooftop. Man, we should become people who become radically generous with what we have been given because we know that our debt has been forgiven. We can now love freely without walls around our hearts because we know we've been perfectly loved by Jesus. We can now see everything as a gift and rejoice in the one who gave it to us. Our lives should become one big gospel sign that points people back to Jesus. If you have a Bible this morning, I want to finish with just a passage of scripture over in uh, Luke chapter 19. If you want to flip there with me. In Luke chapter 19, scripture shows us uh, how a thief responds when his debt is paid. Luke 19. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10. How does a thief respond when his debt is paid? Luke 19. It says, he entered Jericho, it's talking about Jesus, and he was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, um, he could not because he was small in stature. Remember the song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. Okay, that's where that came from. Verse 4. So he ran on ahead and climbed into the sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Verse 7. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Listen to this passage of Scripture. Jesus locks eyes with this little man, invites himself over for dinner, and Zacchaeus melts. You ever seen somebody have like an inappropriate reaction to something? Like you tell your kids to clean their room and they just fall down on the floor like they've been murdered, right? Like, and you're like, dude, it's just like a couple sweatshirts and some socks, maybe like an inappropriate response, right? What we see here, Jesus locks eyes with Zacchaeus, invites himself over for dinner, and Zacchaeus melts, has this kind of inappropriate response to what Jesus has said, right? All Jesus says is, I'm going to your house for dinner, and Zacchaeus says, I'm giving half of what I own to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone, I'll pay him back four times. Like the crowd's got to be looking around like, where did that come from? What in the world? We see Jesus say to him, today salvation has come to this house. Listen, Zacchaeus in this moment, when he comes face to face with the Savior, Zacchaeus recognizes the weight of his sin and he knows that he needs to turn from it. He knows that there's nothing else to do for him but to turn from it. You see, Zacchaeus here isn't working for his salvation. He's working from it. He no longer needs to steal because he recognizes in Christ he will have all he will ever need. And Jesus says to him, salvation has come to this house. Jesus says, (laughs) For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is what God does. He seeks and he saves the lost. Jesus, at his crucifixion, hangs between two thieves, two people who violated the Eighth Commandment, just like you and just like me. Flip over a page to Luke 23, two pages to Luke 23. We see two thieves here, and we find one thief, though, who chooses to shoulder the burden of his own debt. He doesn't turn to Jesus. He doesn't ask Jesus for forgiveness. He doesn't become a Christian. This man, this thief, chooses to shoulder his own debt, and he goes to hell to pay for his debt forever. But there's another thief. Look to Luke 23, verse 41. Luke 23, verse 41. It says, And we indeed justly 
for what we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, and he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. This, this second thief looks at Jesus and he recognizes you never did anything wrong. You are God. I am a sinner. Forgive me. And Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Now listen, Jesus is paying our debt here in this moment on the cross, but he doesn't just stop at paying our debt. He also gives us an inheritance. Think about this. People that have stolen from God our entire lives, he pays off our debt and then he adopts us as his children, writes us into his will so that we can receive his inheritance. Like that's me paying off your debt and then giving you extra spending money. What? No one does that. But Jesus here adopts us in as his children, writes us into the will, and we receive an inheritance. And that's the gospel of Jesus. That's the gospel of Christ. Listen, the question this morning is not, are you a thief? I think we've seen by now, you are. The question is, are you a thief who doesn't turn to Jesus and chooses to shoulder the burden of your own sin debt? Or are you the thief that turns to Jesus. Are you, will you be the thief that attempts to pay off his or her own debt in hell? Or are you the thief who allows Jesus to pay your debt on the cross? And I submit to you this morning, as I close, the gospel is the only thing that can satisfy our thieving hearts. The gospel is the only thing that can radically change our thieving hearts, can change us from one who steals to get to one who is satisfied and content with all that God has given only the gospel can do that. As we come here to this table this morning, we are given the body of Christ that was broken to pay our debt. We receive the blood that was spilled to pay for our inheritance. Let me pray for us this morning. God, today as we look have looked at the Eighth Commandment, and you have told us you shall not steal. Many of us came in with a better image of ourselves than maybe what we have right now. Maybe many of us came in, Father, and, and we didn't see ourselves as thieves, but God, we've been stealing breaths, we've been stealing moments, we've been stealing uh, time, we've been wasting our days. God, when we woke up this morning, this was a day that you did not promise to us. When we pillowed our head last night, we had no promise that we would wake up this morning, and yet here we found ourselves stealing it living it as if it was a gift that you didn't give to us. But God, as we come into this place, may we recognize that we are thieves and we need a Savior to pay our debt. May we look at the face of Jesus this morning and see it as better. God, would you make our hearts believe that? That Jesus is better than our stealing. Jesus is better than our thieving. Jesus is better than the glory we are trying to bring to ourselves. God, would you help us today to turn that spotlight off of ourselves and turn it back on you, the one who provides every good gift in our life. God, today as we take your body, as we are given your blood, may it be a reminder to us the work that had to be done for our debt to be forgiven. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.